So when I was a freshman, first year, four degree cadet at the Air Force Academy, um, I call my mom every Sunday. And then on Monday, an A-10 fighter plane crashed in Wyoming. Pilot survived, but the plane crashed in Wyoming, which, I don't know if you know this, is not Colorado Springs, <laughs> Colorado. My commander calls me into his office Tuesday morning, and he says, Cadet Sardui, stand at attention. I was like, yes, sir. I was ready to go. Whatever he wanted me to do, I was ready. And he said, I'm going to play you a voicemail. <laughs> and you normally only get phone calls on Sundays, but I need you to go call your mother and explain exactly what you do here. And I was like, oh, I don't want to hear this voicemail. This is going to be bad. This is going to be a bad voicemail. I don't want to hear Here's my mom's voicemail, word for word. Boop. Is my baby okay? Oh no, I saw the news with the plane crash and it's my baby flying the A-10 Thunderbolt 6. I don't know the number. Please call me back. Click. She didn't leave her name. Or my name. Hello and welcome to Why America, the immigration podcast. My name's Tim Kane. I'm the J.P. Conti Research Fellow in Immigration Studies at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. We aim to explore with this podcast the reasons why so many millions of foreign migrants choose to come to the United States and take an oath of citizenship, a process that's both a testament to diversity, but also to a cultural confirmation of American values. My guest for this podcast is Jose Sardui. He's a graduate of the Air Force Academy and a veteran Air Force pilot. His Twitter bio, at Jose Sardui, which is J-O-S-E-S-A-R-D-U-Y, says, pilot, comedian, actor, officer, aeronautical engineer, 25 years, Air Force, and veteran, born in Cuba, raised in Miami, Cuban family stories galore. Jose was born in Cuba and deported because of his father's political prisoner status. He came to the U.S. at a young age. Jose served in enduring freedom and Iraqi freedom as an Air Force pilot, and his comedy career started out in New York and Philadelphia, getting on stage any time he wasn't serving. He was selected for the 2007 Latino Laugh Festival in Los Angeles, and in 2008, won the Funniest Person in South Texas comedy competition. He's been seen on CNN, CBS, Fox, and Nouveau TV's Comedy Unfiltered. He was the co-host of Nouveau TV's Stand Up and Deliver, which aired three seasons and appeared on Fox TV's Laughs in 2015-16 as both a performer and a host. So, Jose, thanks for joining us today. Hello, everybody. Thank you for having me on your show. <laughs> Man, I'm just thinking you must have been hazed a lot as a freshman if you were trying to pull off hijinks like that. No, no. I like I Like I said before, I wasn't funny. I was an inside joke teller, so I wasn't. I wasn't actually funny myself, but um, that bio is now old. I've had some more TV appearances since. Tell then. us. Boom. Yeah. So I've added uh, CBS. I was on the CBS morning show uh, with a group called the GIs of Comedy. I was on NBC. So I was on the last season of Last Call with Carson Daly, which um, for many people, they're like, Carson Daly still had a show? Yes, he did. <laughs> I did his last season. And then uh, I've done a bunch of stuff for the CW and uh, the Weather Channel as not actually as a comedian, but actually as a uh, aeronautical engineer and aviation expert 
doing uh, basically alien shows and wild weather shows. So I don't know if they'll bring me back to the alien shows because they were like, well, isn't this amazing? I'm like, uh, no, I, <laughs> but, but what do you think it is? I'm like, did they turn it off and turn it back on? Then you don't know. It's probably, that's how you do it when you're a pilot. If your radar says you have an alien, yeah. turn it off, turn it back on. If the alien's still there, then maybe. <laughs> um, and so they were like, that's, oh my goodness. Everyone else was so impressed. I'm like, I, I'm not. Uh, so I don't know if I'll be back. But yeah, I've had some, some TV appearances. And then I've also had some commercials uh, that were national commercials. Jose, are you getting more support, do you think, from, um, like, I found you as an Air Force Academy grad, and somebody said, look at this guy, he's got a he's got a bit about a Saturday morning inspection at the Academy. Are you getting a lot of support from Air Force guys, veterans in general, or are you getting more from, say, the, uh, the Cuban and immigrant community? I think it's whoever spots me at the time. It's really hard with so many social media platforms and all that to be noticed, so... When the Air Force people find out, I get a lot of support from the Air Force. When the Cuban community finds out, I get a lot of support from the Cuban community. But it's tough. It's tough to get uh, your name out there. Um, there's just so much white noise and there's a lot of talented people. So you get lost in the shuffle. I'll give you an example. Jennifer Lopez was my boss when I was at Nuvo TV, Stand Up and Deliver. She was the chief creative officer. So she's my boss uh, at the time. And Veterans Day, she tweeted out my name, my Twitter handle to her like 2.7 million followers. Wow. I got three new followers. Um, (laughs) So it's tough. It's tough to translate (laughs) uh, support into, um, you know, that that household name status. But things have been happening. Uh, The dry bar special that it did uh, called Cuban Pilot which I wanted them to put Cuban pilot question mark, but right, I don't right. think they, I don't think they put that in there, but uh, that's gotten over 2 million views uh, online and on different platforms. And uh, I just aired on a couple channels doing some shows. And so I'm, you know, getting some motion, but again, the support comes when they see me. So that's good. You know, I, I just gotta, I just gotta get to see more. I think your bit about your mom and and you know being Cuban and, and how that was sort of interpreted. Just the name Jose is great. My name is Jose and nobody believes me. <laughs> Story of my life. I used to live in Texas. I went to meet a woman's family. The dad opened the door, he was like, You're Jose? <laughs> gonna be like a real Jose, you know? <laughs> it's like, what did he think was coming to the door? Like some dude with maracas, like, I'm here today, you're dead! Okay! <laughs> Nobody thought. I thought maybe that was just the South, but I used to live in Philadelphia, a lot of different cultures up there. I met a Puerto Rican guy. He's like, what's your name, man? And I go, my name's Jose. He's like, no, papi. Your name not can be Jose. I'm like, yes, it is. I was born in Cuba. He's like, you look like a policeman. I live in Southern California now. Worst part is I'll go to some Cuban restaurant that's run by Mexicans. And they'll see me sitting by myself like, I come back and explain the menu. And, I'm like, and then I feel like I got to be extra Cuban. Like, I got it. Arroz con pollo maduro, por favor. And they're like, oh, okay. 
the guy from immigration, the guy from immigration, and everybody scatters. I want to get a little bit of, let's, let's paint in a little bio for people that don't know who you are uh, or your story, because it's fascinating. I mean, your, your mom uh, and a lot of your family were part of the uh, Mariel Boatlift back in 1980, and you're what, three years old, right? I was, yeah. So we came, uh, they, Boatlift ended in May of 80. And so we came um, just before my, my third birthday, I think. We were in March. I'll fill in a little bit here. The boat lift happened in 1980 when, you know, Cuba is still a communist country, a hardcore communist, tons of political prisoners. And, um, you know, it's, it's a long and complicated story. But the short version of it is Fidel Castro said, fine, if you you know, if somebody can come and pick you up, then you're allowed to leave. Well, there was this mass of hundreds of thousands of people that went to this one port in Cuba, Mariel, and lots of uh, Cuban Americans were coming over in boats, fishing boats and vacation boats or whatever. And so just a ton of hundreds of thousands, I think it was 150,000 Cubans come over as refugees to, to America, creates a, you know some controversy here. But you're three years old. So yeah. do you remember any of this? I don't. I, I had um, memories of a very interesting thing because of that. So I had memories that I thought I had. I have one legitimate memory from before the age of three that my mother's like, yes, that I think that's true. And I was just running out of my aunt's house. She had double doors and I was running with my cousin, uh, Rolando, and we were playing and, and I just have a brief little snippet. But I had memories of being on the boat and she's like, that's not, it wasn't at night. And I was like, oh, it wasn't at night? Oh, okay. All uh, right. So uh, the Merrill Boatlift is an interesting political story because it wasn't like send your political prisoners over. It was Jimmy Carter, who I think was like the best human being we've ever had in the presidency, but, you know, got played a little bit in foreign politics a lot. Um, he's like, hey, we'll open our borders to anyone from Cuba that wants to come here to, and taste freedom. And Castro was like, well, I'll I'll empty my prisons and mental institutions then. And so we any political prisoners like my dad, we had tickets to go to Jamaica and then we were going to buy tickets there and then fly to Miami and ask for political asylum, uh, all those trips got canceled. And so they're like, oh, you want to leave? You got to leave through the, through, the port, through the port. And so we were put in these basically like internment camps uh, with criminals, right? Criminals and crazy people. And it was a big, you know, big chunk of my family, anyone that was a political prisoner. Like my dad got six years for writing a letter, which wow. he signed, uh, you know, not the smartest thing, but uh, he signed the letter to Castro telling him he he didn't like how he ran the government and he posted it on a, a bulletin board with his name on it. So yay, dad, for yeah. fighting the power, but boo for putting your name on it. So you got six years for that. I was conceived during the prison stint, so I got that going for me. I'm a conjugal <laughs> visit baby. Um, <laughs> not a lot of people can say that, right? <laughs> Who is that? And then- uh, we came in 1980 and we had a sponsor. So my my godparents up in Rochester, New York, were our sponsors. And that's why we didn't have to get, you know, if you've seen the movie Scarface, there were like tent cities underneath the, the freeway overpass because these were criminals. Like they didn't know where to put these people. The crime rate in Florida shot up for years because of what happened. And it was just like this this nightmare. People didn't like Cubans for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm. Uh, it's true, but we got guys like you out of it, right? So you know, here you yeah. are. You're, 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 you're a veteran. You've been in uh, two American conflicts, uh, fighting for the good guys, 
and even the stuff on the crime, you just a lot of the crimes folks were in prison for were, were like your dad. They were political prisoners. They weren't hardened criminals. They weren't, but they were the minority. They were the minority of the people sent over. So of that large number, and it's still it's still equalized after a while, right? The Cuban American community became a very respected and loved part of the American culture, even though we had the those numbers. But yeah, all the political prisoners came with like this you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, like, let's get the American dream and hit the ground running. And that, I think, made up a lot for the the mistake, you know, of uh, or, or the the move that Castro made to send bad people over. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there the, was also a sizable Cuban population already in, in Miami. But to your point, you were, you, you eventually came back to Miami. Tell us about that journey from three years old to whenever it is you, you finally settled down. So this, going back to the memory thing, we lived in Rochester, New York, and my little sister, uh, my mom remarried, and my, my my stepfather and my mom had my little sister, and I took her ice skating when she was like six. And I remembered very clearly when I was in Rochester playing Little League hockey, right? And so I went and I was like, I'll show you how to skate. So I get there and I'm terrible. I'm like, I must have forgotten how to skate. I thought it was like riding a bike. You would never forget. So we get back to the house. We tell mom the story. Right. Oh, yeah. I tried to teach your mom, but I forgot. Remember when I played Little League hockey? And my mom looks at me and she goes, you never play hockey. <laughs> I go, what do you mean I never played hockey? She was like, do you know the rules to hockey? I'm like, no. I Did I make that up? I made that memory up. Maybe like to, to like when I moved back to Miami to make new friends. And yeah. it just got incorporated as a real memory. Like that oh, really wow. happened in my life. Because all the memories I had about the Cuba story coming from Cuba was because I heard my mom tell the story over and over. Right. And so I created images in my mind. We left at night. Right. <laughs> like, And everybody was covered in plastic bags because it was raining. My mom was like, it never rained and we did not cover. It was very hot. <laughs> so it was just like, it's very interesting how memory works. So we lived, we lived in Rochester for a year. Then my dad got a job in, in Puerto Rico. So we lived in San Juan for a year which was nice. We were like right across the street from the beach. So, uh, you know, I enjoyed yeah. the beach as a kid. I actually had a tan. So I looked, if not like a Jose, I at least looked like a Giuseppe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A little Mediterranean. And then uh, we moved back to Miami for another job opportunity. And at that point, I think I was like four, uh, almost five years old. So since then, uh, lived in Miami, but we moved, I think before I was 18, we moved like 13 times. Oh, Wow. Yeah, just neighborhood to neighborhood to get so to. You guys, you, you took the immigration thing seriously. Yes, yes. I'm a constant immigrator is what I do. I, <laughs> once I'm in the country, I want to immigrate to new neighborhoods and explore them, you know, get my visa for that place. Can you stamp my passport? Oh, we don't do that here, sir. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, now when you were a kid, did you, I mean, you're probably like me. The guys and gals that go to the Air Force Academy, we all think we're going to be the mayor of Moon City someday, right? Or <laughs> so. So, were you? Who were your heroes as a kid? And I'm curious, which comedians were your heroes? Well, uh, comedians were uh, not necessarily heroes of mine. There were people I really enjoyed, and there were comedians I loved growing up. That you know, it kind of sucks now. Like I loved Cosby's comedy. I know you, you find out later you're like, oh, man, you know, it's it's like I, I, I know people that knew, uh, for instance, John Lennon. And I love John Lennon's music until I found out he's a wife beater. And I was like, ah, now I got to not stop listening to that music. Right. But yeah, Cosby, Carlin, 
all for different reasons, right? So uh, Richard Pryor, that kind of thing. But my heroes were, you know, Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong. I want to be an astronaut, right? And even even like Krista McCullough, you know, that that died in the Challenger accident. Those are my heroes, people that that went into the space program. And over time, you start to pick up these these heroes. And I was a very unconventional kid in in that respect, right? So were like, oh yeah, my favorite hero is Superman. And I'm like, ah, I like Socrates. You know, it was just a weird, yeah. <laughs> weird way to to look at the world. I think uh it started pretty early. So yeah. That that McCall of the Challenger explosion, that was literally like two weeks after I got my nomination or not my nomination, my acceptance letter. So I was I was oh, going wow. and it was like everybody in the school was talking to me about it as if I had you know, known them personally or something. And it was just yeah. uh, a very interesting time. But you you told, you said that your mom, even after you go off to the academy, suddenly she's on fire. Like every time there's an accident, she's worried about you, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, my family didn't know much about how it worked. I mean, it, it's pretty interesting. The um, When my family is, uh, for the most part, when they're ignorant on something, they're at least good hearted about it. You know what I mean? Like the Challenger accident was what sparked the whole desire to be an astronaut. Wow. I wrote a letter to President Reagan as a kid and I said, hey, uh, sir, Mr. President, I know we need, I think my mom corrected it, like you have to call him Mr. President. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, I wrote him a letter. I said, the, the space program is in trouble. If you need me to be the first kid in space, I'm ready. You know. Oh, wow. And uh, the State Department wrote me back and said, stay in stool, kid. Um, but- but they did write me back. My mom was like, you write it, I'll send a letter. So she sent the letter. And that's what started the journey to become, you know, an Air Force Academy grad and a pilot and all that stuff. So that was a seminal event in my life as well. So what? Let, let's talk about your mom seriously for a minute. I mean, for, for whatever reason, Jose, when I hear your voice, I suddenly feel like I'm a four degree talking to a buddy <laughs> that's in the same squadron and you're making fun of your mom. Like we all make fun of our families, but I hope she appreciates it and still loves you, even though you're, you're very good at uh, teasing her. Well, she knows she's my hero. Uh, my mother's is, is a badass. I mean, when we were in that internment camp, that government down there is, if there was one word to describe how they interact with the populace, it's misinformation. Huh. So they told them you're going to be in this internment camp for a week in preparation for them coming to get you. You don't need to bring food or anything. And my mother was like, oh, okay, well, she brought condensed milk for me, but nobody brought any food. Wow. We get there, you have to buy the food. Nobody had any money, anything like that. So she's panicking, right? That there's not enough, There's we don't have, enough, we don't have any money. How are we going to get food? How are we going to eat while we're here? So one day, the internment camp was right by the beach and there were, you know, barbed wire and towers and guards but it was it was relatively easy to get in and out to go use the phone for instance so my mother went one day and stepped outside and said I'm going to use the phone and then she just kept walking and like hopped in a taxi and like pretended like she had a gun and like drive and he's like what it's like I have to get milk for the baby right so we drive to my aunt's house and my mom my mom and I just imagine like a an action star. She just kicks the door open. Like I need money for the baby. Right. And then my aunt is like, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be in a camp. And so she basically mugs my aunt and takes all the money that she has on her and gets back in the cab. And the cab guy is, he, he's driving back. It's like, I can't leave you right there 
because they'll see me and then I'll get kicked out of the country. So she's like, okay, thank you for helping me. You know, she, she told him the story afterwards and he was like sympathetic. So she gets out of the, out of the cab and starts walking. Well, in the time that she'd been gone, a protest had been formed. It, it, they, they don't have spontaneous protests where the people want to protest. The government set this up. Oh yeah. And it was just people outside yelling at the people inside the camp, telling them that they're traitors and, yep. you know, go bad and, humans, huh? Yeah. Go and have sex with the Yankees all you want. Right. And uh, my mother had to walk through this protest of very angry people. Now, they don't know. And she's just walking through like, yes, yes, traitors. Yeah, she's walking through. She gets to the front gate. The guard recognizes her. And she's like, let me in. And the guard's like, holy crap, lets her in. The two guards have to go inside and close the gate because the the crowd realized that she was one of the people and that she'd walked through them. And they would they just wanted blood. And so they like stormed the gate and they had to like get pushed back and stuff. Cause they're, you know, they were riled up like a mob, right? On purpose. So my mom sneaks into the camp and my dad didn't even notice she was gone. She'd been gone for like an hour and a half. Jeez. My dad, my mom comes up and she's like, look, I got money for food for the baby. And my dad was like, what? Where did you get? Who did you rob? She's like, um, you're, you're, <laughs> you know, you're, uh, your aunt. And so everybody was like just stunned, but my mom provided yeah. that that food for the whole family. We had like I think we had like ten people there. How did how did she talk about Fidel Castro and the communist government in Cuba when you were growing up? Well, it I I have a very um, very in depth understanding of this, predominantly from my family, but also because the entire Cuban community is very much a political, you know. We, we discuss politics openly a lot. It's one of those things. My father and I, we butt heads all the time and we, we've gotten into screaming matches. But at the end of the conversation, we're like, all right, dad, I love you. I'll talk to you later. He's like, I love you too. You know, we can separate political talk from the other person. And so I, I always knew exactly how the, the Castro government did things wrong. And I understood the bias that they never claimed anything that they did was good, right? So like even the the move they did where they had uh, college students volunteer to go out into the rural areas of Cuba and basically make everybody literate, that that is actually a positive program, but they find a way to, to make that negative. So my family is hyper biased against the Castro regime for good reason, right? They did a lot of horrible things. Uh, but they won't even ever acknowledge any good things. And so took growing up and getting to a more critical thinking kind of education to be able to separate the two and be like, okay, I, I see the problems uh, with it. And then some positives, right? There's some things you can learn, even from the very worst regimes. Like, oh, they did that. Okay. You know, uh, maybe we can incorporate that into a regular democratic government. But for them, it's like my parents have uh, communism Tourette's. Right. Anything that's that they don't like, anything that Castro did, communist. Right. So they so that was that was my upbringing. That was my political background there. Now, and, and did your mom want to become a U.S. citizen? Did, has she has she been naturalized now? Yes. My my mom was the first. Uh, she naturalized in 86. And it's an interesting story because I got naturalized with her because I was a kid. Right. I was, I was so you're nine. you're nine years old. then. Yeah. So I'm nine. And we did it at the Orange Bowl in Miami. Everybody stood up and. Uh, did the Pledge of Allegiance, and then they they launched fireworks and stuff. And I remember clearly being mad and not wanting to do the pledge because 
my mom had to take classes and pass tests. And I felt that I was like, I didn't have to do those tests. Oh, wow. I don't, I, I don't deserve this. Right. So yeah. I, I, I was, we, you know, that kind of moral foundation was already established in my family as a kid. So that was, I remember that clearly where my mom was like, stand up. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to. And it wasn't a disrespect to the country. It was, I was, I felt like a, like a fraud yeah, to yeah. be able to take my naturalization without ever taking the test. So, Wow. Well, how did she feel about it? How did she feel about herself becoming a U.S. citizen? It was huge. We, you know, this was um, the United States and this particular, you know, national experiment, political experiment is something my family really, you know, took to heart. Like we've internalized all these concepts of democracy and freedom of choice and the, the equality of opportunity and things like that. I, I think those concepts buried in the in the United States Constitution and things like that, it, it it became our home. Even though we, you know, my mom misses Cuba, she's been back a few times to visit family and she's happy to get back here. So this is our home. And uh, that happened pretty early. I think it I think it helped that we had such a horrible previous country to make this one our home, but I don't know. I think even if Cuba had been okay, this would have become our home, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did she say when you came home and told her you wanted to go join the Air Force and maybe go to an academy? Um it was funny it, because my mom uh, she she cried to me cuz she knew I wanted to be an astronaut so she knew all the but she again they're very supportive, even when they're totally ignorant. I I think it was January or February of my senior year in high school. She's crying and she's like, "I am so sorry, I could not get the money together for you to go to college." I'm like, oh. "Mom, I got accepted to the Air Force Academy." She's like, "I know you wanted to go," and I was like, "It's <laughs> it's free." It's, and my mom was like, "What? It's free?" <laughs> she's been trying to get like a second mortgage and stuff to send me to college. So it was like a, she was angry, but then, you know, relief set in. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys have to, for our class, we were the first class that were issued computers, right? So that's kind of what our plane, class of 90, man, zero dot zero. (laughs) And we got teased, you know, relentlessly, but for whatever reason, we weren't issued them, Jose, we had to buy them. So you had to show up at the Academy with a check for, I think it was a thousand dollars. And I forgot my check. <laughs> I thought they weren't yeah. going to let me in. You know, uh, did you guys have? Yeah, to do I think that? they worked it. I think they worked it. You had to pay twenty five hundred, and that was like for books and uniforms and all this stuff at the beginning. I didn't have that. I didn't have that money, so they just took it out of my paycheck. Yeah, well, that that's another thing. You tell tell your mom, mom, we're actually getting paid to go to college. Uh, that's right. Know. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, they they take it out of us for sure. Yeah. I, I I don't know. I don't know how I have a possibly inappropriate story. So all right, tell it. Tell it. Man. Every every class, if you look at every class at the academy's history, almost every single class, if not every single class, has something where they were the first. Right, the yes. first class with women, the first class for you with computers. I was the first class with internet. Ooh, and the year after me was the first class with a firewall. What that means is for a year, <laughs> we had unfettered access to pornographic content from the <laughs> content from the internet. It was horrifying. People, one guy took off 
his operating system to load more porn. Onto oh his God. It was, it was unreal. And that, that firewall came and, um, it was like the wild west, man. So what's that, what's that class of yours? Is it 2000? No, uh, 99. So 99. 99. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So there'll be no general officers. Probably you guys are all. <laughs> no. I mean, my class had, uh, had a guy who organized a um, orgy organization. Oh my God. Like he organized it from the Academy on his computer, right? 256 K. That was, <laughs> that was what the computer had. So yeah, it was a, it was very interesting. Everybody that came after us much more clean cut. Yeah. Everybody before us, you know, probably a lot more innocent. We, Ooh, yeah, I think. <laughs> now, was it, did you did you have your heart set on Air Force or Navy? I don't know about your experience, but I have met more West Point astronauts than Air Force astronauts. I don't know why that is. Uh, I just wanted to fly, so I found that there was you could go Marine Corps. I looked at all the astronauts' profiles, and so there was Air Force, Marine Corps, Navy, and Army. And so I I was wherever wherever I could go, and then I saw with the Air Force, I like their planes the most. Right. So you got to be pilot first and they have a test pilot school and it's just a more clear path. So that's why I applied to the air. And my, my best friend was going there on a football scholarship. So so I, I it kind of steered me in that direction. It's so funny. Well, now, what was it like? You know, you came here as an immigrant, as a refugee, you're three years old, but you're probably not growing up thinking of yourself as an immigrant. Was there any sense of that at the academy? Did you ever feel like my experience is different than, than my classmates. No, I mean, there weren't a lot of Cubans and there weren't, you know, the, the number of, of Hispanics and Latinos was, was small. We were a minority. And so I'd kind of already integrated into white culture growing up. I kind of, I found it was just easier to just, you know, Hey, Jose, you know, that's not how you say it in Spanish. In Spanish, it's Jose, but they're like Jose, right? My second grade teacher said Sardui. My grandmother says Sardui, but second grade teacher says Sardui. I'm like, that's how you say it in America. So I'm Sardui, right? Um, so I, I never went that route where people like, my name is Miguel Rodriguez. Like, all right, calm down, sir. Um, <laughs> right? I never got that. And I also, I was like a nerdy kid and I was, uh, I moved a lot. And so I learned to just blend into the group that I was in kind of observe their patterns and the things that they talked about and the things that, that worked in their group dynamics. And then I just kind of integrated that way. I was super annoying as a child. Like I'd get to a new school and I would just like, you guys playing hopscotch? I'm pre- I like hopscotch. Can I play hopscotch with you guys? I think we should play hopscotch. You guys are really good. That was a really awesome move right there. And they're like, uh, slow down, stranger. Right. Yeah. So I was just uh, aggressively friendly. So that was a little bit of a different experience for me in that I I didn't feel like an outsider. It also helped that I was that I'm incredibly pale uh, when I don't tan, and so I I look like a white dude until I you hear me talk to my mother. What uh, <laughs> what cadet squadron did you start out on? So when I was there, it was uh, you know you do two squadrons, so you do four degree and three degree year, and then you move to a second squadron. So I did thirty nine and then three. So oh my god, that's right, that's right. The cool campus radicals to the uh, Cerberus. And let me tell you, the upgrade in parades was sensational, right? <laughs> the last, the last, the last class uh, was 40. So 39, second to last class off the parade field to the third one. Uh, yeah. Uh, unbelievable. 
And for our listeners who don't know, I, I and I'm not even sure of the history, but the Academy has two dormitories and one has squadrons number one through, gosh, I think it was 24 20, when yeah. I was a cadet. And they are closer to everything, right? They're closer to the yeah. mailroom. They're closer to the par- the parades. You can just you fall out of bed. You're in the parade field. The, the side John Hall, where I was, we had to march a half mile to get to our mail, to get to the, you know, the PE. So yeah, 39, they're only 40 squadrons. So 39, you're in the far corner of Cy John Hall. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is amazing. So it went, it went from an average of six people passing out during a parade parade to the, to the <laughs> average of one. <laughs> Phenomenal. People don't understand that. Like if you were watching the parade with binoculars, about 40 minutes into the parade, you'd look and you just see a head drop out and a head drop out like, like, like there's sniper fire. Someone's getting snipered. (laughs) No, they're just passing out. And there was only one person that could come help you. And they would drag you out like you had been snipered. It's just this very comical thing. And so you went, you went from 39 where it was just like, blam, blam. Blam. Six person went down. You were like, all right, parade's almost over. And then you go to three and it's like, come on, man. Really? You got to hold on. That's amazing. I started in 26 squadron and then my move was to 27. So yeah, it's a totally different experience. Yeah. Very lateral, very lateral movement. Oh, it's funny. You know, you talk, you joke about your accents and you've got a flexible accent, but t- tell me that's not somewhat driven by the Academy because I showed up freshman year. There's guys I couldn't understand, you know, <laughs> whether they're from Maine or whether they're from the beaches of California or Texas. And yet by, I don't know, Christmas, yeah. um, there's sort of this mono language that the military yeah. has. It just blends everything together. It does. Yeah. But I, I think once you get used to one accent, Right. Like if you come from immigrant parents and you hear an accent, it's it's kind of easy to pick up other accents. Right. Like I knew at the academy there was a southern guy. I won't use his name, uh, but he he was like, hey, Jose, you know how I remember your name? And I was like, how is like your first first part is like SAR, like our squadron assembly room. And then the last part is like when I'm calling pigs out in Little Rock. SAR do we? Right. So you're kidding me. No. So I was exposed to like a lot of different cultures that I never grew up with. I mean, I grew up in Miami, Florida. We took a field trip to the Everglades, like to the edge of the, we didn't go into the Everglades, just the edge of the Everglades. And we had to stop the bus and people were like, look on the left side, a deer. And we were all like, oh my goodness, a deer. We were just so like city-fied that a deer was a fascinating oh, animal yeah. in the distance, you know. So there was a lot of um, kind of blending together of cultures, and it, it taught me a lot about the country, things I didn't, you know, I'd only seen in movies or understood from television. Now you get to see people from those actual places, and it it, it really broadens your horizons, you know? It does. Uh, well, it, it, it's funny because I think it shaped the way that I research immigration, and I write about this from a, you know, in a kind of an academic perspective, but this is a big country. There are so many cultures within the United States and we see them integrated around common values. So it's been a, it was, it was a great experience. Definitely shaped my life. And I'm sure, you know, similar to you. Hey, 
All right, so hey, I know they're fans of yours. Part of the podcast, I always sort of do a rapid fire, and I just want to ask a little bit about about you. Is that all right? Sure, sure, go ahead. All right, so rapid fire. How many brothers and sisters do you have? Um, from my mother and father, uh, who, you know, they shouldn't have ever been together, um, given that I was conceived in prison, none. So that's good. But my dad, the reason he went to prison is because I have an older sister in, in Germany, he was studying in East Berlin. Uh, I think it was uh, civil engineering as an exchange program with the the uh, the regime there. That you know they they kind of coincided with the Castro regime. He got a lady pregnant, and then they they brought him back to Cuba. And when he wanted to go back to Germany, they wouldn't let him go. And so that's mm. why he wrote the letter. So I have an older yeah. sister in Germany. My mother remarried my stepfather. My stepfather has three kids, and then they had uh, my younger sister. So it's a uh, Modern family. Modern family. Love it. All right. How about, um, what's your favorite uh, movie in the last few years? Um, last few years. Uh, I, I really liked, uh, Fury Road, the Mad Max sequel. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's just such masterful storytelling. Like that's the epitome of show don't tell as a movie. Right. I mean, you may not like a pot, you know, a post-apocalyptic movies, but that one was just done so well. I was like, every movie should be done like this. Like, this is so great. Like, character development without having to tell you that someone is great. They just show you that they're great at something. And so that's one of the the recent ones that became in my top five. It went in there with, you know, Ghostbusters and Batman 1989 and, you know, Goodwill Hunting. It's oh, in no. there. It's in that. It's in the top you five. You cannot like Batman 1989. It's not... I loved it. I, it was the first superhero movie that wasn't dumb. I saw it like eight times in the theaters. I would go oh, wow. and buy a ticket to something else, and I'd be like, eh, you know what? I just want to see Batman again, and then I watched it. It hasn't really stood the test of time in terms of a Batman movie. He clearly kills people, <laughs> so it's not the, not the very best Batman movie, but I, I love it. You know, it, you, can, you can claim a movie's not good and still love it, right? I know... I know Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home is my favorite of the Star Trek movies. <laughs> it's not like the best it. one. I know it's Wrath of Khan, but Voyage Home is my favorite because All that's right. the one I saw in theaters, and that's the one I, I gravitated to. So, how, how what uh, among your fellow comedians? Who who's the uh, who's the comedian we should be looking out for that you're just really impressed with? Well, he's been around for a long time, so Brian Regan is my favorite comedian. Oh God, of yeah, all, of all time. And a lot of it is not only is this comedy very funny, and for anyone that that wants to like watch comedy with their children, this guy is the is the king. It's his skill. So he is a regular New Yorker, right? He curses. He tells you know regular stories. Uh, I've met him in person, and he's just this really great uh, human being. But he decided to work clean years ago because he could get more work. He decided uh. to do this thing to go against his own voice and write jokes from that. And he has become the master of it. And just to, to take that kind of skill and impart it into this great career and, you know, hours and hours of material. This I, is just, this is Brian Regan. If people don't know him, I'm stunned he's not more famous. I just he's just girth units alone. Look up girth units. bit. <laughs> I mean, God. Yeah. The the yellow one is the sun. It's just it's like unlimited lines from his <laughs> from his bits. Yeah. Now, you, you, as an immigrant here, you're a little bit worldly. You've been in the Air Force. You've traveled. Is there a place in America you haven't visited that you're looking forward to seeing? Um, I think I've been to every state. 
I think the only place uh, there's there's places I haven't seen that I'd like to. I haven't seen uh, Rushmore, so I'd like to go there. Um, and I guess more the the bigger states that I've just driven through. <laughs> I'd like to maybe go to Omaha, Nebraska, and see what that's about. You know, I've I've only driven through Nebraska, and honestly, you could sleep through most of that drive because there's no there's no turns. It's just flat and straight. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you could fall asleep with the cruise control on even before they had like automatic pilot and you could wake up. Oh, we're fine. I've been out for 35 minutes. Yeah. Um, so places like that, that I'd like to visit and kind of see more in depth. I have, I've snowboarded on the, you know, in the, in the Rockies, but I would like to maybe go and, and do some snowboarding in the, uh, on the East coast, you know, mountains, mountain ranges, Appalachians and stuff like that. So, you know, Jose, I ask everyone where they were on 9-11, all my guests. Um, but I'm thinking, were you a cadet on 9-11? Or no, you just no, graduated. No, I was flying the 141 the morning of – now, to put this in, in perspective, uh, uh, pretty recently there had been a, a Cessna crash into a building. Like that had just happened within a few weeks. So I'm in a air refueling simulator, which – Back in the day, this wasn't a computer screen. There was a toy, a toy KC-10 that was projected onto a, onto your like your screen, and it was like you're flying with a model, and you you flew the the sticks into position, right? So, very, very archaic technology. But I was doing that simulator. I came out for the break between the the two sessions, one where I'm I'm the guy doing contact, so I'm actually going up into the to the air refueling. And then the other, the, the second half, I was supposed to be pre-contact. So I would be the one that sets you up, gets you ready at a certain distance. And then when you're clear contact, I give, I give him the plane and, or the other pilot, the plane, they fly into, to get fueling. So we're between the two, we go out and it's like, they crashed, they crashed an airplane into the, the twin towers. And I was just like, uh, morons. It was, I thought it was another Cessna. You know what I mean? Wow. That's really yep. what happened. And it, um, as we all watched it, it progressed, and we 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 all knew this is this is going to be horrible. Um, and I'm just fortunate I was on the ground. I knew people that were flying, and they weren't allowed to land. And uh, you know, some people were like, "Well, I I'm going to run out of gas if I have to go that far inland uh, from the coast to land." And so we had to do makeshift air refuelings and and whatnot to be able to make the airplanes land safely. So wow. for my squadron and whatnot, uh, I definitely got the, the easy break. I, I watched the majority of it on television, and um, that was very horrifying. I, very few times in my life have I been that disappointed in humanity, you know, that we, that we could, that human beings could do something like that was, uh, it, it's always like disappointing, you know, because yeah. you're human and you're like, come on, we're not that bad guys. And then you see that on TV and you're like, eh, we still got a ways to go. So that's what happened to me. All right. Rapid fire book that changed your life when you were, let's say, I'm assuming when you were younger. So I wasn't, I, I, I was a big reader, but only to get the book report points. Right. So it was just <laughs> like, it was, it was skim a Nancy Drew novel and just get the big takes. Right. Yeah. Um, and then one birthday, my sister, my my stepsister on my dad, my stepdad's side, she got me the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit trilogy, you know, ah. the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Hobbit. And I was like, oh, nice. 
a book, right? A series yeah. of books. Well, I didn't read them for like a year and then I read them and I devoured them. It was the very first book that I was I just couldn't get enough of and the the imagery was in my head and I would have dreams about the book I just read and I ended up reading them over and over again and learning a little elvish which I've forgotten but I, oh, no. I went super geeky, yeah. And so that started a trend of trying to find books that I loved. I fell in love with that series, uh, a lot of Stephen King stuff, but not the horror stuff. Um, like the the dark the Dark Tower series is my favorite book series of all time. The I think it's oh, is it the Dragon's Eyes or something like that? Uh, so the stories of his that had that weren't the horror stories were my favorite. But it was Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit that really. Uh, broke me into like that's cool. loving, loving novels. That is cool. Uh, president in our history that you admire the most? Uh, like I said, as a person, I would say Jimmy Carter. As an actual president, I would say Lincoln is uh, probably the one that I, I think accomplished the most during their presidency. Probably a close second would be FDR. Okay, so... So I'm going to I'm going to show off a little bit here. I've got a book yeah. out with the Oxford University Press. It'll be out in a few months. It's called The Immigrant Superpower and I've got a chapter on presidents. I didn't know this before I started writing the book. Abe Lincoln was the first president to ever push for legislation to increase immigration in the US. Really? I mean, you'd think he was kind of busy, right? Yeah. But no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He really insane. got he got a lot of things right. That was that was one of the the cooler things about him. Now, you know, you you take an oath as a nine year old kid to the Constitution as an immigrant that most civilians don't take, but everyone in the military takes that oath. I don't. You 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 were probably like me, just excessively thoughtful. So when you're a cadet thinking about the Constitution, you're sworn to defend it, not to defend a king or a or a president, or even to defend the land. You're defending a document. What about that document's the most important to you? I think it's the equality of opportunity. So that that's what's and and equality under the law, right? So the rule of law and the equality under the law and the the way that the laws are supposed to shape equality of opportunity because the idea of limiting your populace to say a caste system or something like that where people are limited in what they can do you limit the potential of the country. But if you really tend to that idea of empower your people, give them the ability to do anything that they can, they will do things you never thought could be done. And so I think that at the heart of it is the thing that's most most worth fighting for is those concepts where, you know, the law could be unfair but you can change it. But while the law is in place, it applies to everyone. It doesn't matter if you are rich or poor, uh, if you are uh, famous or not, if you are very important person, it doesn't matter. You must follow the law and there are consequences to your actions. And that kind of meritocracy is, is one of those, it just drew, it drew me to the idea of serving and protecting a nation like that. I think it's time for a commercial break. We're going to do one of your skits. We'll come back. My mom is great. She speaks with an accent. Um, so when I was little, it was fun to bring my friends over. They'd be like, hello, kids. Welcome to my home. That's how she says home. 
do you want something to eat? And they were like, yeah, of course. Like, do you want hard dough? My friend's like, what is hard dough? I'm like, that's how she says hot dog. People come over to the house like, listen, if you have like a phone or a computer, you can use it all over the house. We have high five all over the house. You kind of play with fire with your comedy, right, Jose? You're, you're, you're using accents. You're not supposed to do that anymore. That's verboten. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's a great thing about comedy is there's really one rule to comedy is you can say whatever you want as long as they're laughing. So if they're not laughing, whatever you said will get super judged, right? But if they're yeah. laughing, people be like, you know, even if like, I disagree, but this is really funny. Like, uh, <laughs> there's a power to that. There's a, a free speech element to it that is just, it's uh, hard to rival. And what is funny changes over time. So you have to adapt. You have to evolve as a comedian, the things that you made fun of in the eighties as a comic, you can't make fun of in the, in the twenty tens or the twenty twenties. It's now you know a new taboo. It's a new thing that we've. Oh, you know what? That was probably super unkind to do that. So we've we've evolved and and it and it gets. I think for the most part, it gets better over time. Um, there are some some regressions, but if the regression happens. Because, you know, in the past we didn't protect minorities or, you know, people used to use the word retarded and that really was hurtful to parents who had children with disabilities. We just weren't mindful of it back then. And now we are. And so that's a good thing. You know, if sometimes you go like, well, you know, that's not my, uh, that's not my preferred pronoun. Yes, that's also important, but it's probably a bit much to maybe cancel someone's show because they did that. But it is, it's better to be on this side of the pendulum. Do you know that you're kind of pushing the envelope? Or are you, are you trying to do things that are, that are um, I don't know, uh, racial or, or ethnic? Um, and, and do you worry about it? The, the term in comedy is called edgy. So you try to, you try to put an edge, right? And rather than a blunt uh, practice sword, you try to put an edge on that sword. And the reason you do that is... We as comedians, if you're doing it at a high level, hope to be like modern day philosophers, right? So when you get funny and you start to be able to talk about difficult subjects, you feel like you have a responsibility. Most comedians I've met feel like they have a responsibility to say something of substance, something that can uh, maybe further the human experience and the make people better. And so, yeah, you want to push boundaries. As uh, Carlin kind of put it, there's a line and you want to pull people over the line and a good comedian will make them think that it was their idea. Mm-hmm. Now, do you worry about cancel culture? No, I think it's, there's just, there's responsibility. You know, there's, there's consequences to your actions. I think maybe they, they go too far sometimes, but it's better than, you know, leaving people hanging, right. And, and throwing people under the bus and not protecting each other. Right. So, uh, like, like the example I said, right. You, if I misgender you in a conversation, yes, I should be told what I did wrong and I would apologize, but that's a minor infraction versus, you know, sexually harassing someone. You know what I mean, so the, they're, they're on the, they're two ends of a spectrum 
and we definitely want to protect anyone that's sexually harassed. And so we, we, we create this language to prevent that from happening. But when we're on this side of the spectrum, you know, there should be some nuance to uh, the, the ramifications to your actions. Right. So, but I would rather be on this side of the pendulum, right. Where we're protecting more people and we're more aggressive than times in the past. Right. I remember growing up and hearing Pollock jokes and N-word jokes, right? Remember, I, 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 I heard them in school. I heard them from wow. adults. And I don't hear those anymore. Those have gone away. You know, the, the funny part. thing is, we, I remember hearing Pollock jokes. That was the one ethnicity that we made fun of. We didn't make fun of anybody else when I was a kid. And you couldn't tell them around my grandmother because she was Polish. So it's like, you know, right. I, I, was, right. I was Polish-American, but I, but I thought it was funny, but not around grandma because then you get in trouble. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, they were just, it was the, because they, and why did they tell Pollock jokes? Because they were overtaken by the Nazis so easily in the, right. in the eyes of, in the eyes of the world. What a horrible reason that some like, you know, horrible fascistic regime took over your country in a surprise attack. And now you get made fun of for it. Like it was just, oh, no, no. Right. And so we told all these ethnic jokes growing up around each other and I remember a very young age, I didn't like it. I didn't like picking a group because there were people in that group that I knew, right? And I was like, they're not like that. You know, so I, I, I did the jokes, but I changed the ethnicities much of the time. Um, but at one point I didn't, I just regurgitated those jokes. And that used to be common, happened all the time. Well, guess where we are today? That's not, that's not a thing people do. Even super racist people know that they can't say that stuff out loud or they'll be ostracized socially. And so that I, I'd rather be on this end of the spectrum. But this whole idea of cancel culture, like this has never, this has always existed, right? There's always been people who are righteously ignorant. Well, I never, that's always been around, right? It's just before they maybe didn't have access to the CEO of the company to be like, did you see what your employee did? Or, you know, they, they would come to a comedy show and be like, that person offended me. And they're like, okay, well, we'll uh, refund your ticket. And then it never went anywhere else. Well, now they have a voice on social media. And so this very small minority of people have a bigger, you know, bigger voice. And so they can affect more people than they did before. But the cancel culture is not new. People have been, I don't like that. And so I want it to go away. Doesn't matter if everybody else is okay with it. And maybe your opinion is unreasonable your reason for liking it is illogical or, you know, emotional and misguided. It doesn't matter. You have a bigger voice now, but it's always been around. That's just, I just want to tell you, I admire you being edgy. I think it's great. I love your comedy. Um, now I'm going to, I'm going to maybe make it a little more serious or, or I don't know, maybe this is sort of funny, but you, you were stationed overseas, right? With, with the air force. So I flew into Iraq and I supported the enduring freedom mission. There you go. I, I, um, but I have to tell you the, the Cuban mafia, as it's called, is, is so vast. I was in Hong Kong, buddy of mine, um, his mom, like yours is a Cuban immigrant to the U S went to the Naval Academy. So, you know, we get together in Hong Kong, which is so cool. And, and I'm like, well, what should we do? And he goes, Oh, I know a guy He owns a hotel here. I'll call he's Cuban. He's a good friend of mine. <laughs> what the hell is it with you guys? Are you secretly running the world, Jose? That's what I want. Um, well, because we're, we, you know, we're detached and we're away from Miami. Uh, right. And so we're, we're disconnected from the matrix. So we have to, 
we have to keep in touch with everybody and replug everybody in. When I was at the Air Force Academy, I went to a party and I was in, introduced to one of the lieutenant colonels, I think at NORAD, who was also Cuban. Like that was, they just, they brought us together. I don't know who instigated it, but everywhere I go, if there's a Cuban in the area, they, they seem to find me. So <laughs> I think we just, we have that uh, kind of, that kind of root family and, and culture where we, we care about each other in that way. I had a student, his name was Sardui, and he's like a distant cousin of mine. You're kidding. No, we flew together and uh, we do this thing called operational risk management. So we give points for different things like, okay, there's bad weather. We'll get a point for that, whatever. There's more birds. We'll add a point. Well, I put, um, I wrote one in like two Sarduis in a plane, 700 (laughs) points. Uh, That's a high high risk uh, having two Sarduis in the same plane. (laughs) Oh, that's good. Well, I, that was the, the question I wanted to ask was when you were stationed overseas, did you ever um, talk to some of the locals about immigration or did you ever pick up you know, folks that were asking you for advice? I would talk with people. I'm, I'm very much a, uh, a listener. So I listen. And once I get a feel for what's acceptable, then I enter the conversation. And so I, I heard a lot of stories about people that wanted to come here and had misconceptions about the United States and what we were all all about. And the big thing I picked up on is I understand why they hate us. It's when you're told as a kid that the reason that your life sucks is the West or the United States by people who you trust, your parents, who only only say those things because that's what their parents told them, right? And that probably started at a misconception or misunderstanding or you know, something the United States maybe did as a mistake in the past. And so you get this culture of just like you burn that hatred into, into your, uh, into the kids and they grow up and they, they don't know anything different. And so when they meet you, that's, I'll give you an example. I was, um, I was in Bahrain and if you've never been to Bahrain, that is the Las Vegas of the Middle East. I've never been. Uh, All right. uh, Yes. So they have gambling, they have prostitution it's all on the down low, but that's where anyone in the Middle East, all those very you know observant Muslims that are not actually observant uh, will go. So Bahrain is where we were stationed. Obviously, the Navy set up a base there because <laughs> it's the Navy, right? So I go there and I'm staying in a hotel and my TV didn't work with my PlayStation 2 or whatever. So there was a room in the middle. It was like a like a living room. It had a TV that was compatible with my PlayStation. So I go in there and I play in walks in a guy full, you know, Arab clothing, right? The regalia, the, the white and the, the hat and his wife full, you know, face covered all the way down. Right. So they sit down and he's like, what are you playing? Right. And I was like, I'm playing Madden. You know, I was playing Madden football game. He's like, uh, do you have fighting games? And I said, yeah, I have a fighting game. And I think he, we played Tekken together. So I played Tekken with this guy and it was, you know, besides the accent, it was just like playing with a buddy. I beat him obviously. So America, right. But I, um, he's like, you're very good. And he's like, uh, can you please, uh, stay with my wife? I get, I have to go do something. And so he leaves. Now I'd gotten, you know, those Intel briefings, 
And I was like, when he said, can you just stay with my wife while I go? I'll be back in a few minutes. I was like, what the, f- what, what is happening? Is this a trick? I'm being tricked. This is some kind of trick. Right. So I just focused and just went back to playing Madden, you know, and I was, and she, and she, we were, we talked a little bit, but I'm like, I, I don't think I'm supposed to talk to you, ma'am. I'm, I'm you know, <laughs> but we talked about a lot of things and I learned a lot from her. He came back super grateful and what broke down those barriers that allowed this Arab guy to allow some American who he doesn't know what my religious background is. He doesn't know that I'm retired Catholic. He just, you know, we played Tekken together. We came together in that mutual thing that we both liked. And then it was like, I, I told my commander, right? And he's like, what? Right. I told the, 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 the Intel people, they're like, that's unheard of. And I'm like, ah, I tried to, I didn't argue. Right. And so I, I saw what it takes for people who are very different to come together in a lot of situations like that. Awesome. Well, Jose, what's next for you? What, what, what's going to happen? How can we follow you? So uh, if you just Google Jose Sardui at this point, I've gotten to this great point in my career where if you Google it and you totally misspell it. So if you put H O S E dash a, you will still get Jose Sardui. You're, you're uh, misspelled famous even. Wow. That's right. That's right. We're at that point. Just Google what, whatever you think Jose Sardui spelling should be. You can Google it, but it's J O S E S A R D U Y. Uh, you can get on all my social media stuff and uh, follow me. I'm going back on tour now that the clubs are opening back up. And once cruise ships open back up, I'll be back on the cruise ships, hopefully. And uh, once, you know, I can go and do colleges again, I'll be doing colleges. And the whole thing is currently I'm trying to sell a TV show called Flying Funny. You can go to the website and see the the pilot episodes that I did on, on my own dime. Uh, so it's like it's uh, <laughs> like low budget. So flying-funny.com. Uh, so I'm trying to sell that show and then just try to get as famous as I can so uh, people will know who I am. And when I go to your city and try to sell out a show, people will go to the show. Highly recommended. I love what you're doing. And thanks so much for uh, for joining me, Jose. Thank you. Thank you very much. Tim. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Why America? The Immigration Podcast with my guest, Jose Sardui. I'm Tim Kane, and the producer is Ali Giyu. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always find us and listen to past and future episodes at whyamericapod.com. Thanks so much for listening. Don't be a stranger.